Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Pangeris, and I appreciate you tuning in. This is a pretty unprecedented time. I don't need to tell you that. Um, and I think kind of more than ever, Things like podcasts or other ways of virtually sharing our stories and our wisdom with one another is really important. So I'm, I'm so glad to have you tuning in. And I think that this particular episode is going to be um, really compelling I want to make a note that this episode was recorded long before uh, COVID-19 was even a thing that we knew about, at least. Um, and so bear in mind that if, if we were to probably record this um, now, we, we would have had a very different conversation. But I hope in some ways that the conversation that you do listen to, the interview you do listen to, will be insightful and resonant. And um, so many of the themes that this interviewee is working around and with are extraordinarily relevant today. So I will introduce her in just a moment. But I want to let you know what I'm kind of doing on, on my end of things um, there are sort of two, two things in the works. Um, I'm going to continue with this podcast, although um, I had planned to take a bit of a hiatus over the summer. So um, there will be, certainly will be episodes released until at least, I think, May, um, possibly a little further along than that. But it's a great time to listen to old, after that, it's a great time to listen to older episodes and the podcast will continue on as long as I um, can do it. Um, I just might take a bit of a hiatus. But in the meantime, in this very moment, um, in March 2020, uh, I have two things you can do. One is you should definitely keep up with me uh, via my newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed to it, you can go to livinginthisqueerbody.com uh, to sign up. You can also uh, support this podcast via Patreon um, through that link as well, through my website, and listen to past episodes. You should also follow me on Instagram. I Right now I'm doing um, pretty regular 30-minute uh, story times on Instagram Live, and they're fun for me to do and people are showing up and I'm reading queer, all sorts of queer things. Um, it's a pretty big variety of things. And so you should, you should join me. And I announced those, um, the day before the other project that I just started, um, is called dispatches from our queer bodies in pandemic times. Um, and I'm putting a call out today 
to uh, everyone, everyone who's listening and anyone you know. Um, these are the steps if you want to participate, if you want to have your voice heard or share your um, experience. Um, I'm asking that folks think about this prompt um, in the time of COVID-19. What are you learning about what it means to be living and existing in your queer body? Um, I am accepting all stories and I'll be compiling them and um, putting them out in dispatches uh, via the podcast platform. Um, so the way you submit a, um, a story or your experience is you have to download the Anchor app and it's free. I will put a link in the show notes for that um, and limit the uh, voice memo to about one minute. Um, and I really want to hear from you. And I think that we all want to hear from each other. So hopefully this um, will be helpful and help us to connect. So the first episode of the dispatches from our queer bodies in pandemic times will have already released by the time this has come out. If you haven't listened to it already, go to anywhere that you listen to podcasts and you will find um, some stories from past uh, podcast interviewees like Adrian Marie Brown and uh, CJ Miller, Meg Bradbury and others. So definitely check that out. Um, so again, just a, a reminder, this was recorded um, long before we were living in the times we are living in now, although there are some, well, I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, but I'm so honored, truly, I mean, and humbled to have my guest today. Uh, Alinda Mariposa Sagara is the New Yorkan songwriter, activist, and visionary behind Hooray for the Riff Raff. I love this band and I love what they're about and she's about. So if you haven't listened to them, please listen. Alinda was born in the Bronx and has been writing and singing since she was a child. Inspired early on by classic musicals, punk and beatnik poetry, she was always drawn to the artists and radicals of the world. She explored the underground of New York City and was educated in squatting, train riding, and radical politics at a young age. At the age of 17, she left home and traveled the United States by freight train, eventually landing in New Orleans, where she helped form a hobo band of seven called the Dead Man Street Orchestra, in which she played washboard and sang. At 19, she began to record and write her own songs under the moniker Hooray for the Riff Raff, with the intention of using her knowledge of folk music to write songs from her own unique queer Latinx feminist perspective. Now, at the age of 32, Alinda has recorded nine albums and has traveled the world playing her songs. She released the critically acclaimed album, The Navigator, in 2017, which featured her anthemic love letter to the Puerto Rican diaspora, Palante. Belinda has spent 2019 working on new music, healing, and growing. She's inspired by plant life, the ancestors, and the global community of protest music. And Alinda today, 
would like to tell everyone to remember those suffering in ICE jails at this moment. She believes, and so do I, that we must demand that during a worldwide pandemic, ICE stop their raids and release those still in detention. In the show notes, I'm linking um, to uh, some of Alinda's chosen New Orleans-based and nationwide orgs that are doing really great work. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm honored to have gotten to speak to Alinda and um, take care, everyone. Alinda, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really an honor to be able to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's just dive in. I want to get started with the question I ask a lot of my guests and have increasingly been trying to ask myself in an ongoing way. But what do you think your earliest memories are of either being in a body or learning about? what it meant to be in a body. I've been thinking about this ever since you asked me to do the interview because mm. I've been listening to the other episodes, you know, oh, yeah. and it's, yeah. such a, it's such an interesting question. And it kind of led me to a couple of different memories. Mm. Um, what I think is interesting is I always sang when I was little. I loved singing. And I remember mm. spending hours trying to make my voice somehow sound like Judy Garland's voice. That was my like project in life, you know? And I think it's, it's interesting though, because I never saw it as me using my body as my instrument. Mm. I just kind of saw it as like, this is my soul. And my soul is coming out in my voice, you know? Right, right. So I have those memories of singing and trying to manipulate my voice and like trying to learn how to make a sound from my body, you know, mm -hmm. and, and expressing something. But I never saw that as a connection to embodiment. Mm -hmm. I think when I, all of my connections to my body came from honestly disassociating. I remember when I was little, that was my first understanding of my body besides puberty was being like, okay, we're going to float away now. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing it. And I remember being like, wow, this is a great tool. I'm going to use this all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, to float away or to shut down and go to sleep. So it was me working. Now I see it as me working with my body and being like, I have to survive this amount of years. So we're going to, we're going to detach for a while, you know? And mm -hmm. I see the, I see the, the, you know, the, how I needed that and how it was a tool for me. But, um, so that's something now that I'm actively trying to learn how to undo and unlearn and being and, and learn more about it's okay to be right here, you know? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, 
it's such a common um, experience amongst a lot of the people I talk with on here. And I think, mm-hmm. and the patients I work with in my practice, I mean, I think one of the things that occurs to me is just that being able to reflect on your childhood and see it as, see the dissociation as like a real tool for survival and um, a help to you, I think is is a very sweet and nurturing way to relate to yourself and um, feels like the beginning of how, how you can kind of begin to relate to your ability to um, dissociate in ways that are nurturing for yourself. It's, I think it's a big, I think a big part of embodiment in some ways is an awareness of our the moments when we're dissociating, you know, I mean, it's, it's all part of, of the course. same thing. We're not like always, you know, like fully a hundred percent in our bodies ever. And so, um, yeah, so I, I hear that. I mean, how is that, that kind of dissociation, do you think kind of changed forms in your, your childhood into, you know, young adulthood and your life? It's interesting. My relationship with disassociating could probably be like a memoir, you know, (laughs) like it's definitely, it definitely shows different times in my life, different chapters in my life and what I was trying to survive. And, and now what I'm trying now learning that I am safe, which is, you know, such a gift, such a like luxury that I'm, I'm trying to really enjoy and that I'm trying to really experience, you know, and I think throughout my life, you know, when I was a kid growing up in New York city, I grew up in the Bronx and I definitely learned about how I, I was in a very bustling, somewhat dangerous, big city, but I, I really just wanted to be out all the time. I wanted to be out of my household. I grew up with my aunt and uncle um, in a very tiny apartment. Mm -hmm. And I really had this desire to be out, you know, in the world and out of like the confines. Me and my aunt shared a room, shared a bed, and I loved her to death, but I was losing my shit, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. Um, And I had to disassociate out in the world, learning that I, I was kind of like, I I started to become so much more aware of how small I was and how I felt really ferocious, but I knew that my body was, was tiny compared Mm. to all these people out there, you know? And I, I, I definitely learned what I call now like Jedi mind tricks where Mm. I started understanding the power of energy, the power of, of also the way I dressed my body. You know, I think that's when I started to come into punk and into riot girl and was just learning how to cloak my body and wear things that people would be turned off by and would, I I started to get so much into the idea of how can I put out this energetic force of don't fuck with me, even though I'm five, two, you know? Right. And that was a really big part of my identity. And that was a really big part of what, of how I, you know, interacted with the world and, and my view of the world. And it, um, 
it really educated my politics and it really just, it's an interesting, um, like time period to look back on. And I still feel it. I snap into it a lot, you know, mm-hmm. but I had to kind of at an early age become aware of how vulnerable I was in the world while still saying, I'm going to go out in the world no matter what. I don't want to be, I felt like it was not an option to stay inside and to be scared. Yeah. So I just was like, I'll go out there and, you know, see what happens. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, then I, when I ran away, I ran away when I was 17 and that is a big part of, you know, it's definitely a turning point in my life. And that whole experience of being on the road and being a runaway kid. And, you know, I grew up really deep in a punk scene that was teaching me about squatting and teaching me about riding trains and Mm -hmm. living totally off the grid. Yeah. And I, that whole time period of living on the road and being a hobo and sleeping outside and sleeping in abandoned buildings. And that was such a period of learning, you know, having a totally different type of disassociation with my body where I would be Mm. like, Hey body, we got to walk three miles right now with our pack and our banjo or our guitar or our things of water. And like, it's raining. So get ready. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> like, right, we're going to totally. do this. And, um, and also this idea of, okay, I'm sleeping outside and I have my pack, my crew. Um, and I don't know what's out there and I don't know what's going to happen to me, but this is what's happening right now. So we're just going to have to turn off and, and do this and get sleep. You know, there were so many Like, I think about that a lot and how that really informed the way I deal with the world now and the way I Mm. see the world and um, how I, you know, that was such an interesting time period for me and my body traveling through the country and traveling through, you know, navigating all these different situations that now, you know, after I've, it's been years. And I find that sometimes I get a memory now where I feel the fear I should have felt then. You know, it also helped those 17. When you're sure. 17, when I was 17 at least, I was like, no, no one's going to fuck with me. Yeah. And now I look back and I'm like, holy fucking shit. I am so lucky. Yeah. So I think now that I've had some time to wind down and have off time for the first time in my whole life, I get a, a memory of being in some hit, you know, some car while I was hitchhiking. I get a memory of sleeping outside or like getting woken up by police in the bushes. And my body is like, can we feel this fear now? Okay. You know, and it, it mm. comes out and it's been really intense, <laughs> really intense. Yeah couple of years of getting those memories and being like, we're working them out now, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I I think that's a, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense from my perspective as like a psychotherapist, just thinking about how dissociation works and how that delayed reaction you're talking about is so you just, I mean, you articulated it really well, like this idea that, you know, even, I mean, as adults, we, we, 
finally for the first time feel things that we weren't able to feel or experience or even know as children, you know, because it just wasn't oh, safe. Yeah. I think it's, it's really, and our body is, it's like the whole, our body keeps the score kind of thing, you know, I mean, it really does Completely. hold it all. And, and yet it, it does sound like those experiences. I mean, I'd love, I, I definitely want to hear about how you're kind of navigating that, like that kind of body memory now, but it also seems like the, those choices you made, you know, I mean that those experiences that you had riding trains and being in the punk scene, I mean, it, it really, it required a kind of compartmentalization of your body and parts of yourself. And I wonder if it, it also, if you think about how it kind of informed, like different parts of you shutting down or different parts of you being able to kind of come more forward. It sounds like the really fierce, like I can move through any space and take up space in a way, um, with other folks, like that, that part of you was very present, um, during that time. Yeah. Do you feel like other parts that kind of came forward while the like fear was submerged somewhere deep down? Yeah, I definitely, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think all of these experiences help me understand what it is to have a public persona and a stage presence. I feel like I've been having a stage presence ever since I was 13, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like I got a stage persona the minute I was understanding how I was going to get cat called on the street when I was 13, you know, when I started realizing, Oh, wow, I'm not safe. Okay. Well, I'm going to put on a superhero costume. I'm going to put on this, um, you know, and I remember watching, like, I remember watching that movie, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And I think I was about, in fifth grade. I don't remember anything about the plot, but I remember seeing these girls in a band putting on this wild red makeup and looking like super eighties punk. And I remember being like, that's what you do. (laughs) So I, I created a, you know, a persona, I created a, a, like a superhero, like I said. And I mean, I definitely, that part of me came out, but also I think in my personal life and in my personal relationships in, you know, that was when, the, I think that was when I got the harsh reality of, I think a part of me got beaten down in, in that because my first relationship was very abusive. And I was a kid that was just so, I just wanted to be loved so much. You know, I had, I grew up with my aunt and uncle and I had issues with my birth parents, with my mother and a big estrangement with her. So it came out in my relationships. And I think that was a really tender part of me that, that went away that had to kind of go deep underground, you know? Yeah. And, um, and now later in my life, I'm learning every day how to, bring that tender kid out again and be like, it's okay. You know, it's okay to come out. It's okay to trust. It's okay to love again, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So it was a really interesting time because I was so fierce and I was so like seeing the truth and in, you know, I was in high school. I was actually a freshman when 9-11 happened. So for every New York kid, especially a kid who grew up in the punk scene or with radical politics, it was a huge moment for us to be like, wow, what is going to happen? And, you know, I spent so much time going to protests and learn to not trust police at a very young age because I saw them beating up my friends, no matter how small they were, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, so I had this very fierce part of me that was going out there and was fighting no matter what, but it was also coming from a place of I'm getting, you know, hurt so bad in, in my love relationship that nothing could hurt as bad as that. You know, there was a, I also, I have a, I had an interesting time growing up in the punk scene because I didn't do drugs. I would, well, you know, I count alcohol as a drug, so I would drink, but all of my friends were doing heroin and, you know, they were having really bad issues with addiction. Mm-hmm. And I was just honestly too scared, which I think is such a blessing now. Yeah. Right. Um, So I felt like I had to pick my poison and I I definitely did grow up with an idea of, you know, you got to abuse yourself or allow abuse to a certain extent. For some reason, that was just a no brainer to me Hmm. was that I had to choose what the punishment was going to be. And I'm still trying to understand what that was. I'm sure it was just conditioning from society, you know, but I was like, okay, I I pick my poison. I pick my numbing device, which is drinking. And yeah, it was getting such a, such toxicity in my relationship that I was just like, man, like come at me, you know, like this hurts so bad, that I'm numb to the rest of it kind of. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. How have you been reflecting on that? That kind of, I mean, I agree. I, I understand what you mean about it being conditioning, but that specific way of coping for you is, I imagine, really multi layered, like, a, you know, in all of the different ways that you identify and, and, have experienced the world. Why do you think that resonated for you at the time to kind of like pick your, pick your poison, like pick you, it's almost a way for you to be in charge of something, right. You know, like yeah. you have control over something is I feel misunderstood and vulnerable in all these ways in the world. And this is what I can yeah. agency around or something. Yeah. That's interesting. That's definitely a part of it. There was a part of it that you know, I experienced just like different forms of, of, I would say like emotional abuse. And yeah. I think I felt so much anger. I felt mm-hmm. so much rage. And there was definitely a part of me that was, that felt very out of control. And that made me so mad that there was a part of me that was just like, you're never going to like, just to the overall world, outside world, whoever it was, you're never going to see me like, um, on my knees, you know, like you're never going to see, like if I have to take 
this abuse, which I felt like I did, then I'm going to fucking take it like a champ. You know, there was that, Mm. that part of me, but also I felt like there, I had this rage and I really, as a kid, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to take it out on anybody else. I, I really felt like I would just take it out on myself. And that was, it felt like my container to, I ha, you know, take all this rage and just kind of pummel it inward. And I, I really just thought that that was the best way to go about it. And now I'm learning. I mean, also, of course, that has a lot to do with when being a kid who was in a really tumultuous living situation where I didn't know where I was going to go and I wasn't sure who was going to take me. And thankfully my aunt took me at a young age, but there was always a fear that maybe I would have to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with this idea of, I really, I really got to be, you know, uh, somewhat easy to be around, you know, (laughs) and if not, I could end up in a place that I I really didn't want to be. So even though I was rebellious and even though I was like, you know, being bad, there was always a part of me that was like, I got to be somewhat easy to be around. I can't just be like screaming and like getting out all my rage and Uh I have to be likable. So I would take all that rage and all that fear and, and just kind of quietly take it out on myself, you know, or, or, you know, get, experiencing abuse and just kind of quietly swallowing it. Mm-hmm. And now is when I'm learning every day how to be messier and how to take my rage and my anger and be okay with just like letting it out instead of um, channeling it inward and hurting myself inwardly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have a moment where I'm sure you had many moments, but can you think of a moment, I guess, when you sort of realized, it sounds like you're continually realizing now, but when you realized that, that you were taking so much of this out on yourself and it kind of felt like it wasn't working, like it wasn't sustainable, you weren't going to be able to keep doing this. Oh yeah. (laughs) I definitely had, a dark night of the soul and mm. it was um it was on stage oh gosh and oh yeah it was like truly a moment where everything slowed down and I looked out at the audience and I was like this is a nightmare okay <laughs> like we're gonna have to work this out um and I was on stage and it was Radio City Musical oh my god even talking about it my heart races but I'm doing a lot better with it Um, and I was opening up for a big band and it was a benefit for Puerto Rico, which my family originally comes from Puerto Rico. So it's a huge deal for me. And I lost my voice and it, it, it was after only two songs and it was a complete loss of voice. Like it was gone. I couldn't even tell the audience, sorry. And I had to just walk off stage. I looked back at my band and I was just did a a motion of like, cut it. Mm -hmm. I'm out, you know? And I went backstage 
And I remember the first thing that I thought was that I deserved it. And that I would, you know, I just, I thought this thought that was just so mean that I would never think to anybody, I would never say to anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I had a emotional cleansing breakdown where I just cried and I acted in front of my family that I'm slowly getting closer to every year, you know, and my friends and the people I work with, I normally would never be this messy. (laughs) And I just let loose because I couldn't help it. And ever since that moment, it was just this moment where I was like, this isn't working. This like taking this out of myself, this like perpetual like need to be somewhat perfect or to be, um, regulating my messiness and, and to also be afraid of my, my voice, afraid of speaking and telling the truth, you know, about my pain, I think, because I tell the truth about what I see in society, but to tell the truth about my pain or my anger, Mm. it feels so much scarier. And it really was a moment of like, this isn't working, Alinda. You're going to have to, we're going to have to, <laughs> you know, um, work on this and, and learn a, a gentler way and learn a more nurturing way. And I, I had, it's been a couple of years since that moment. And it, I looked at it as at, in the moment, I remember thinking, why would anyone love me if I, if I can't sing? You know, I, I became, it became, yeah. um, my singing became a reason for me to be, to have community or it was kind of my currency. You know, it's like, this is why people like me. This is why people let me in their house. <laughs> this is why people feed me. And, um, I remember my best friend that night being like, I will love you if you work at the shittiest job that makes you miserable. I will love you if you don't, if you never sing again, I'll love you. You don't ever have to do anything and I'll love you. And that was a really big moment for me of saying, okay, I have to, I have to re, you know, I have to uh, reconnect with my, with who I am at my core and, and truly understand the way I feel about other people, which is you don't have to prove to me why you deserve to be alive or why you deserve to take up space or have a voice or, you know, I see it as we all deserve that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had to re align that with myself, you know, and, and I, I saw it as a punishment at first. And now I see it as that was a gift that was this gift to be like, you are being so hard on yourself. (laughs) You got to stop, you know? So it's been a journey since then. And it's been really, really amazing. Now that it's been a couple of years, it's like, I feel it every day. It getting a little bit gentler. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I think it's probably very helpful for many of the people listening to hear 
I don't know. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I, I certainly have had this experience where people have said, you know, this really difficult thing happened to me. And I now know that it was a blessing in some way, right? Like that kind of idea. And sometimes you just are like, don't believe people. It's hard to believe people, you know, that they could actually, it's just like suffering is, um, but there's something about your story that, you know, not like, of course I believe you, but I also think, you know, think that it's really a very potent story coming from a person who, as you've described yourself, has a very long history and a deeply entrenched way of being in the world where you don't relate to the messiness that comes from you as, you know, a blessing or a positive thing or something to learn from. It's like, how much can you control, um, your body and what it does, um, so that everything around you is, makes more sense and is, um, more steady or something predictable. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really been, and it's been so interesting to um, to be someone who has gone from radical queer, you know, feminist community to having to navigate uh, a world like the music industry, you know, and mm. and I feel like everything I do is extremely intentional, and I um, and I had to really be so careful about where I put myself. And, you know, in a, in a way I was still using the intuition I had when I was a traveling kid, that intuition still leads me now where I'm like, I don't like that guy. I'm going to stay the fuck away from that guy, you know, like <laughs> yeah, 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 just using that all the time. And, and really, I feel so lucky that I was in situations when I was younger that it was life or death. So I was just like, there's no, there, there's no choice, but to listen to this intuition and and act on it immediately. Right. So that is still, is still with me, you know, but it it really did make me, it it was hard to go from, uh, like playing at a place like Ida Palooza in Tennessee Mm -hmm. to then being like, Oh my God. Like I really, I felt like all of a sudden I had to be so aware of what I was wearing on stage. And I just felt so, protective, which was also really great to finally feel protective of my body. You know, Mm -hmm. like that was nice. Um, it was a nice thing to do for myself, but it, it really did fuck with my ideas of, you know, how I look and how it's going to, what it's going to mean about the energy coming towards me. And I went from a community that felt freeing And I felt like my time to be able to be playing music in that community was, it was too short. You know, I was like, here we go into this music industry world where what I wear on stage and, you know, I, I felt like that started to kick into hyper gear, the the conception. And, and then now that I've had some off time, I'm like, oh, I had that ever since I was a kid, you know, like that idea of what is this going to mean about how people treat me? And I'm trying to, um, to unlearn that now and to really try to be more, uh, I don't know what the word is. I don't know if bold is the word or just, I'm really trying to teach myself how, um, important it is to 
to have my body and to have to to be able to be in the way that I want to be and to not let the fear of how of what the outside world will project on it, like to not let that stop it. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a, you know, it's maybe try to tap more into that 14 year old or something that like punk kid. Right. Right. When do you find yourself just like in your life now in moments where you feel like you're doing that? Oh, I mean, like, I mean, I don't party as much as I used to, <laughs> um, but going to, I would say like going to a queer dance party is just where I feel like it's like chocolate cake or something for me, where I'm just like, oh my God, this is just so incredible to be so free in my body to just at least not feel, uh, this like burden of, of fear or something. I think those are the moments when I feel like that fear is lifted Mm -hmm. and it's just like, it's just so incredible that weight being lifted, you know? Um, I remember going to this like really cool dance party in Brooklyn, Poppy Juice, which I just love. And I remember like my best friend going with me and uh, it being like 1 a.m. or something and her being like, I'm going to go. Like, are you going to come? And I was like, I'm going to just be here. <laughs> like, I'll see you later, you know? And it just felt like those moments when I'm like, I'll be okay, actually. Mm. And I'll be just like here by myself, dancing by myself. That is like, I really need that. That mm-hmm. is just like, it builds that's when I'm like, this is who I really am. You know, this is who, um, this is like who I am at my core is being here and being okay with being alone. Cause I feel like there's a community here that will protect me and I'll protect them. And you know, that type of feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also just being able to be free and like, I, I really have, you know, I'm still learning how I want to, um, like express my sensuality or sexuality in the world. And at something like a queer dance party is when I feel okay showing my body or being, you know, I don't, out in the regular like mainstream world, I feel I often like cloak more, mm-hmm. you know? So. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising to me. I feel, you know, similarly in, in a lot of ways, but, you know, it's really interesting to hear about a, a kind of a queer space being equated with safety for you. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that there's something about, and, and I, I'm not saying all queer spaces feel that way. It's like these particular course, queer yeah. dance parties. And what is it, do you think about these particular, like, spaces that came to mind you know like the it's it's a queer space it's a space where you feel like you can dance by yourself where you can be you know are these I think we haven't really talked about you know how you identify but this is like presumably these are not you know explicitly like super white queer spaces um yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot about being a Puerto Rican person or a New Yorkian person. And also, I think, you know, ever since I was a kid, I've identified as, you know, I, I always, I like the word queer. And I mean, when I was younger, it was bisexual. Sometimes I say pansexual, but I, for some reason, I just like the word queer better. I mean, there's so much about, I just struggled my whole life with this idea of like being desired and being an object of desire. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, I feel like in queer spaces is when it's been my experience that that feels more like what I'm, me as an object of desire, it can be more complicated and, and I can be more of who I really am. Is just like a full, complicated, strange person with many different ways of expressing, you know, different parts of, of like whether my masculine or feminine side or everything in between, you know, and that is what feels so good to me. <laughs> and, um, that is what feels so, it just feels like me finally. And that's, you know, when it comes to being an object of desire or being desired out in my work life, it's just like, um, I just, I don't know. It it feels so murky and it feels so like I'm being simplified and it feels so, it's just not me, you know, it's just not complicated me. And, and also I really, connect it with a feeling of, of, um, danger of not being safe, honestly, you know, Mm. even though I've had, you know, my major relationships I've had with men and a lot of them have been really fucking damaging, you know? And, um, I, I guess like, I just really appreciate being in places where I feel like also in my relationships that I have had with men in my life, I felt like the power in me, the fierceness in me. And also the, what I would say is like a somewhat more like masculine energy that I have in me. I felt like it was just like despised. Like, cause I felt, I always felt like the per, the man that I was with, was just so intimidated and just also felt a, a desire to like squash that part of me. You know, right. Right. I was in a lot of relationships where my power was not respected. It was seen as something like, all right, we got to stop this out. This girl mm. a little too big for her britches. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, they definitely didn't, didn't do that. <laughs> they did not succeed. Not. Although at moments I felt like they did, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, so I guess that's how it, it's a lot about that. It's about being like a complicated, like full rounded human being and, and being able to express different parts of my, you know, I guess it would be gender or just how yeah. I, um, you know, it that just feels so, it feels so freeing to me since in my, daily life, I sometimes, I feel so out of control about how it's being portrayed, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and simplified. Yeah. Yeah. 
What is hard for you right now about the image of you that you feel like is being the oversimplified version of you? Like, what is that version? Um, well, it's interesting being somebody who is Puerto Rican, but also like I'm, you know, white passing. So Mm -hmm. that's really interesting thing of there's kind of like two different, like, uh, versions of me that people see. And one of which is like a what, like bluegrass musician or something mm-hmm. um, who just like sings their little songs and like, you know, is like this folk, folky gal or something. And that's <laughs> really hilarious to me. But because I've always from the beginning have come across, like I've come to my music being like, I'm making music as like a queer Latin feminist who is just like complicated and and weird and I need to express myself and I'm going to use my knowledge of folk music to write songs from this lens, you know? Yeah. Um, but there, you know, there was a period where it kind of got taken on this ride of like, uh Oh, I play the banjo. Uh Oh, now I'm over here and I'm playing for these audiences that really don't know who I am. And they're projecting all these ideas on me and they think I'm, totally white and they think all these things like, wow, they're so wrong about who I am, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there was that, that ride that I was on for a while. And I just was like, I got to get the fuck off this ride. And, um, making my last album helped steer me more. That felt like me being more in control of I'm, I'm changing this narrative. I'm taking control over, and also, of course, it has to do with the election. I was just like, it's time for me to really, truly put my foot down and be like, this is who I am. If you thought I was somebody who was not a Puerto Rican, you know, like yeah. feminist, then like, I don't know. You got to you got to go, I guess. <laughs> it's not right. going to work. Like our relationship, this isn't working. So, um <laughs> That's been a really interesting and, you know, it, sometimes it gets really, uh, sometimes it feels challenging, but it's felt really rewarding and amazing to just kind of take charge of my project again and take charge of like my persona out there and really talk about where I come from. And, um, it felt really good. It's been, it was interesting though, because being, I was like very open about my, queerness and just like I just didn't really think it was that big of a deal I mean I just like talked about it very openly when my first the first album that started to really get pressed and that was at a time when I was just talking to like you know a British dude who like has never even heard this word before and it was just so it was like to go from playing like Ida Palooza to then talking to some like British man who's just like what is queer and it was just like then immediately being like oh my god they wrote that I'm like a lesbian singer songwriter and I'm like that is not how I identify we cannot go that you know like I'm somewhere in the middle and now it's um it's really amazing to see so many other artists just be so open about their complexity and just be because that's what I was really trying to get to in my personal journey is being like it is okay to be confusing to somebody out there 
I am actually not confused. If, if somebody else is confused, well, they're just going to have to do some research. I don't know. You know? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that, I don't know. I'm, I'm like thinking back to, you know, the younger version of you, like when we were talking earlier about the dissociation and, you know, dissociation is sort of like shutting it all down, but Mm -hmm. there were different parts of you. There are different parts of you that, that really, it sounds like constitute what could be called a mess. I mean, if that's what like being a complicated queer person is, is a mess, then it's a mess, but it's complicated. I like to say the word mess as, as like a great thing, actually. Me too. Totally. I'm constantly, yeah, I'm I'm constantly like, yeah, like talking to my patients about like how we can make things more messy and, and truly, and and being a person who also can relate to the, the very real pressure to, um, you know, perform perfection or perform kind of like mm-hmm. a containment of that mess. And like, you know, I think that there's, there's something really interesting about, and we could kind of go on a tangent about this, but you know, about that particular time in the punk scene, the like anarchist punk scene that, you know, really was, it's like aesthetically messy in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but a lot that's like emotionally uh, contained or a lot of abuse, a lot of like violence, a lot of complicated identities, not really being acknowledged. And I think that it, I can just see how, how I can imagine how it would be kind of a relief to that younger version of you to, to be able to kind of be fierce while also being more honest and more messy. Yeah. Yeah. And being less afraid about um, what it means, what like what does that mean? So then, what is what's going to happen to me if I'm honest? What's going to happen to me if I'm messy? You know, I um, I feel like I I've just gotten more and more comfortable with with being like, well, I don't know. At least I'll have told the truth, and yeah. also just trusting my audience more and trusting that that's what people want is the Uh truth. And, um, and also just like we're living in such intense, like scary times that it really, I look to my heroes of the past and, and I always am just struck by this lesson over and over again. It's always just worth it to be yourself. It's always worth it. You know, when, when the outside world seems so grim and mysterious and you're not sure where we're going to end up as a global society, it's always worth it to just tell the truth and be complicated and, and human. And that is what, you know, keeps us all going really, I think. Yeah. I love that. Who are some of those heroes? Oh, Frida Kahlo has been my, that, that type of hero for me for so long, especially when I was younger, you know, it really meant a lot to me when I was a kid to learn about, I mean, also because of her being like a Latinx person for her to be, um, like a Latina that was bisexual or, Mm -hmm. um, queer that meant 
so much to me to see that and to see that um, it was, I don't know, I just, I, it meant a lot to, to read about it and to see also that her relationships were still, to me, reading about it, I'm like, these relationships were still so, they were kind of, they were all so full yeah. and so important in her journey. And even though she had this husband and this lifelong tumultuous relationship with this person, her relationships with these other lovers were still so important in her journey and in her life. And that taught me a lot um, about just being in bohemian or outside or, you know, artistic community with each other and how our relationships, even if they're short lived, are so important and how we do not have to do this this like hierarchy of relationship and how a longer relationship meant that it was more important or that it was, you know, like yeah. I learned a lot about that mm. from, from her. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. You know, just, and also um, I learned a lot about the blues women, about Bessie Smith, about Ma Rainey, mm-hmm. about Billie Holiday, those women and also reading specifically Angela Davis's book about the blues women and black feminism, it taught me so much about taking your complicated inner world and bringing it out and how you, how you speak about it and how you speak about pain and how you speak about abuse and how you also speak about um, desire and, and uh, just like, complicated sexuality and you know that meant so much to me learning about that as as I was moving to New Orleans as I was starting to learn how to write songs and to sing that was just like what I always kept going back to was Bessie Smith Mm. yeah yeah thank you for for sharing that and and for kind of opening up um some of your stories and part of your life with, with me and the audience. I'd love to hear a little bit about not only, you know, kind of the work you're doing right now, um, how people can find you, but also if there's anything that either you're involved in or or other people are involved in that you, you know, is kind of inspiring you right now um, in this very complicated world that we're living in. Oh, sure. Um, Well, I've been learning, I've been taking this time period to work on a new album, which I'm really excited about. It's kind of slow going because I'm looking for the right collaborators, but mm-hmm. I've been writing a lot and just taking time to kind of download mm-hmm. from the world that we're living in right now. And I get a lot of inspiration from, you know, global activism and uh, whether it's you know, climate activism to, um, lately I've been really inspired by women all across Latin America who are standing up, um, to like patriarchal governments. And I've been writing just like taking in, but also, um, learning a lot about how I can, just use my activism off stage, you know, and get more in touch with 
especially immigrant rights in Louisiana, because right now um, a lot of immigrant folks who are in detention are being sent to rural Louisiana mm. to ICE detention facilities. And it's been kind of a, uh, a it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the media. So I've just been trying to get in touch with activists who are doing really amazing yeah. work and seeing how I can be of service to that movement. Yeah. Um, but really just feeling like this is a very frightening time to be alive. And it's also a time that we can really dig in to our commitment to each other and our commitment to our art and our work. And that has felt very fulfilling. And, you know, a part of that is healing and a part of it is, um, healing the nervous system that I have that has been on like hyper awareness for so many years and learning how to trust and to, to love. And, um, it's been a really amazing, you know, journey so far. And I hope to just be more honest with my audience and to talk about these things. And I hope to be putting out a new album soon and, you know, going back out there and sharing space with folks. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.